0: From the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation with outgoing NAE President Leith Anderson and incoming NAE President Walter Kim. Today's conversation is brought to you by the Wheaton College Graduate School. With more than 20 master's, doctoral, and certificate programs, the Wheaton College Graduate School is preparing servant scholars to engage the world as humanitarian responders, therapists, theologians, biblical scholars, Christian camp leaders, and more. Find out how the Wheaton College Graduate School's flexible or residential programs will inspire, challenge, and equip you at wheaton.edu slash conversation. And now, Let's join in.
1: I'm Leif Anderson, here with Walter Kim. Walter was elected NAE president in October 2019 to assume the role in January 2020. And he and I have known each other for a long time, since we first met at Park Street Church in Boston. His background, experience, and skills are special and interesting, and he's well-suited to lead the NAE into the next decade. And I want NAE members and friends, our listeners, to get to know you, Walter, so Thanks for having this conversation.
2: I'm delighted to be a part of it.
1: So I'll offer a quick intro to Walter Kim, and uh, then we'll get into more details. Walter is a pastor, currently serving as pastor for leadership at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. He also ministered for 15 years at Boston's Historic Park Street Church, a congregation that played a key role in the NAE's founding. Walter has been a member of the NAE board since 2013 and has been a thought leader for us, presenting at NAE events, contributing to NAE publications, serving on working groups with a variety of issues. And Walter is a scholar. He received his PhD from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, his Master of Divinity degree from Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia and his BA in philosophy and history from Northwestern University in Illinois. But aside from all that, let's just get started with your family story. Uh, Could you tell us about your parents' immigration to America?
2: Yeah, Uh, well, as a middle schooler, uh, my father had escaped communist North Korea during the beginning of the Korean War. And uh, it it was a harrowing experience, um, something that he didn't really talk about a lot uh, while I was growing up, but as time went on and I moved into adulthood, he began sharing more about that journey, which involved crossing rivers in the middle of the night, hiding in fields, avoiding troops. Eventually his family was able to reach Seoul, Korea, South Korea, where eventually my dad settled down went to medical school, then met and married uh, my mom. Shortly after that, uh, they decided to immigrate to America. Uh, And it was 1966. It was a challenging time for any family to learn how to become an American. Uh, President Kennedy had been assassinated, Civil Rights Act recently passed, protests about war, inequality, a lot was going on in America. Yet, um, despite all those challenges, Uh, They came like many immigrants do. They came with a few suitcases, a small amount of money, and a lot of hope. My parents often talked about how America represented possibility and hope. Uh, And even if that hope had to take root in a culture fraught with all sorts of racial, political, economic tensions, uh, they, like many, uh, deemed the journey worthwhile and the sacrifices that immigrants often have to make not only to get to this country but to make a life in this country, uh, they firmly believed and have often talked about how that has been rewarded many times over. Uh, and so it's certainly a very important part of my own life story to think about what heritage I've received in my parents' own sacrifices in coming to this country and the hopes that they had uh, and have been fulfilled, Uh, the dreams that they continued to to talk to me about through growing up that has shaped my own sense of optimism uh, about life in America.
1: They came a long way from Korea to the United States, but if I've got the story right, they kept moving once they got here. So you grew up living in a lot of different places and environments and United States. So um, what's the list? Where did you live and what, you know, what were some of those places?
2: That's right. Uh, So I was born in New York City. I was born in the Bronx in the shadow of Yankee Stadium and lived in a few different places in New York. Eventually, our family uh, moved to New Jersey and then from New Jersey to several different places in Western Pennsylvania, the foothills of the Appalachians. Uh, And then I went off to college in Illinois, lived in Canada, lived in Connecticut, Boston. So I, I, I moved around a lot. Um, and in large part, uh, that was driven by the fact that an interesting thing was going on in America in the 70s where a lot of immigrant doctors, my father was a pediatrician, uh, were being recruited to come to these small uh, towns in the Midwest uh, and in western Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, places like that. So we ended up in this small town where I did a, a good bit of my growing up, Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a dying coal town. Uh, had once been one of the wealthiest towns in America, the, the most millionaires per capita during the heyday of the coal and steel industry, uh, and then was devastated with the economic downturn uh, with the coal and steel industry. So it was a very interesting growing up experience uh, to have been in a thriving, urban, complex cosmopolitan environment like New York, Chicago, Vancouver, but also to have this significant portion of my life uh, in middle school years, and high school years uh, in this coal town uh, in Western Pennsylvania. And so th- that experience really has shaped me. To live in these different environments uh, in America. I feel like my life uh, bridges all sorts of cultural divides, uh, not divides that I could deem as a luxury. Oh, I you know, I think I'm going to learn about this other culture or a different way of life by going on a vacation and visiting this location in America. It, it, it was, for me, learning how to bridge cultural divides as a necess- necessity as I try to Navigate the complexities of what it meant to live in urban and rural settings uh, to live in complex multicultural settings and more monocultural settings. Um, And so Those have been very formative experiences for me
1: So how do you connect that to leading a network of American evangelicals? I mean, there's There's more than distance between uh, The Bronx in New York, which is very diverse to Uniontown, Pennsylvania, which i'm guessing did not have a large Asian American population. So how does that relate to evangelicals in America today?
2: Yeah, I I think in a few different ways. Uh, One, just by virtue of the diversity of American evangelicalism. I I think it's often better to think about it not as evangelicalism, but evangelicalisms, that there's different strands of evangelicalism in America based upon region, denominational tradition, cultural history, whether you're in a rural or an urban setting, and by ethnic background, uh, whether you're in an immigrant community, uh, or whether you're in a predominantly Caucasian suburb. These all play very deeply in shaping what we even mean by evangelical. Uh, And so I think my experience in moving in all these different areas is expose me to the evangelicalisms, the the kind of many rooms of evangelicalism. If I were to describe it as this big home uh, with lots of different rooms, uh, I I think that describes what's going on in American evangelicalism. So that that sense of encountering the diversity uh, of evangelicalism or evangelicalisms, as I often think of it, is one aspect. The other aspect is I think we're at a point where this notion of evangelical ascendancy in America, where we're the dominant force and cultural shaper, is a part of the past. It maybe has never really been true of the role of evangelicalism in America. It's certainly the case that in many parts of the country, we have already become post-Christian. And so evangelicalism is... At a point where it has to think about what does it mean to exercise influence from the margins uh, when you are not the majority, when you're the minority. And that's a part of my life experience, both as an ethnic minority, but also as someone who's lived in different parts of America of really learning what it means to think about power and influence when you're not in the center of things when you're having to lead from the margins, when you're having to gain trust and depend upon the ability to influence through trust rather than to influence through the exercise of position and power. And those are very important lessons. In in fact, I would argue it's very Christ-like to learn how to lead not by exercising authority as the Gentiles do, but by giving away power, by empowering others, by learning to serve and not to be served. And these are v- pretty important and challenging lessons that I think evangelicalism is having to encounter right now.
1: That's a big picture view. Let's narrow that down and just back up a couple steps and just talk about you. Um, how did you come to faith? What's your own personal faith journey look like?
2: As with uh, many other Korean American immigrants, my parents, when they moved uh, into New York City, found their way to a Korean American church. And that's because there weren't many places where their native language was going to be spoken, uh, where there would be a network of businesses and relationships to be cultivated. So the Korean American church, as with many immigrant churches, even to this day, often serves not only as a place of spiritual life, but social life, economic life, uh, cultural life. And so my parents uh, attended church, uh, but they attended church more from the cultural uh, perspective, the social perspective. So life for me growing up in the church early on was uh, really a, a matter of social uh, connection than spiritual connection. It wasn't until high school where I encountered a, a group of students that began to study the Bible and had invited me to be a part of their Bible study that I started to hear about the gospel. And uh, it came to a head one day where I went with this group to watch Star Wars. And uh, after the movie, I was driving home with the youth leader uh, of the group and we struck up a conversation about the movie, of course, and he asked me if uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and the way that he died so that Luke Skywalker could escape would, uh, reminded me of anything. <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, I said, well, it reminds me of what the work of Jesus that we've been talking about this, these last several months. Uh, and, and so that was a moment where it started to click and he literally pulled off of the side of the road into a parking lot and shared the gospel with me in full and invited me to pray. Uh, that was the beginning of a journey in which uh, Christ took hold of my life. Uh, that was the first understanding of the gospel. A couple of years later, it was at a conference uh, where I began to ask, well, I, I seem to have made this decision, but nothing's really different about my life. Maybe I'll give God one last chance. So I went to this conference and on the last night of this conference, uh, this was my junior year in high school. There was uh, an invitation for anyone who would wish to stick around into the evening. The gym would be set aside for a time of uh, reflection and silence. And so I decided to stay Uh, and I stayed for, What seemed to me at that point, a really, really long time, but it was probably just like 10 minutes in high schooler at that point. And I was ready to declare my religious experience a failure uh, and that maybe God wasn't all that interested in in me. As I stood up to leave, uh, it's really hard to describe in any other way than just that God seemed to have opened up my head and poured his spirit into my life. There was this palpable sensation of God's goodness and glory of his mercy that enveloped me. And uh, I I spent the next couple of hours just immersed in this joy. Uh, And this joy has been something that I've been unpacking for the duration of my Christian life. What does it mean that God has come into this world with love and mercy through Jesus that he gives to us this inexpressible joy that needs to be unpacked and one day will be fulfilled and consummated in his return and, and so uh, you know coming to faith was this growth of understanding who Jesus says, this encounter with the joy of the Lord and then the long haul unpacking of what that looks like in life.
1: So you've lived out Christian faith in multiple contexts and certainly Harvard University is so diverse I mean, it's not just a cross-section of everybody in America but students that come from all over the world bring all their religions and all their history and philosophies with them. So what was it like being an evangelical on the Harvard campus?
2: So my first day on campus, I walked on uh, to what's the area called Harvard Yard where the student uh, fair was going on where various groups would set up booths to advertise their presence on campus. And I walked up to the InterVarsity uh, grad fellowship table and was delighted that I actually knew the staff worker. I did not realize that Kathy had uh, moved and come on staff with InterVarsity at Harvard's grad fellowship. Uh, And so we were striking up a conversation, reminiscing about uh, past life and catching up with one another. And then she asked, so what department are you in? And I shared I was in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. And then she shook her head and said, oh my, that department has shipwrecked so many people's faith. (laughs) Wow, welcome to Harvard. Uh, It was a sobering moment. And she shared this uh, as not so much a warning, as really an invitation to take up a challenge. And that is, what does it look like to have a curious, and yet confident faith, to be able to be in an environment where your faith will be challenged, where you will be exposed to ideas, ways of looking at, in my case, antiquity and ancient literature, and the Bible certainly is an ancient document. Uh, What would it look like to be in a place where that document is picked apart and put into context with all sorts of other cultural documents of antiquity? to have curiosity about that and open an openness to the hard questions but a confidence that if Christ is in fact who he claimed to be if this is in fact his word uh that we could trust that it will stand up to whatever scrutiny uh the scholar could bring to it and i really did find that in the course of my time uh, at harvard it actually strengthened my faith. I found time and time again that there, there was a suppleness to the work of God in my life that was able to withstand not only the, the harshness of questions, but to see that as an opportunity of discovery, learning more about who God is. And, and so on the one hand, yes, it was challenging questions that I didn't even know could be asked uh, about faith, about the Bible. But on the other hand, I would say it was deeply encouraging uh, because I time and time again found that the Bible, in fact, does prove itself trustworthy. Uh, and InterVarsity, I mentioned University Grad Christian Fellowship because that also became a place uh, of life. And... Uh, I think for me, the discovery of a community of people who were joined together in the pursuit of truth, uh, living life uh, in fellowship, bold witness on campus, encouragement in fellowship, those were critical moments that shaped me uh, in terms of understanding not only the vibrancy of biblical faith, but the vibrancy of... and. how how essential Christian community is uh, if faith is to flourish in places uh, where it is often being challenged. The last thing I would have to say about my experience from Harvard is uh, even though it's an environment where people often are quite critical of faith, it's an environment where people are also pursuing truth. Now, we may come to very different conclusions about what that truth is, But there is this shared search for truth. And I was struck again by this uh, because one of the emails of congratulations I've received uh, after the announcement of my election to this presidency was from my advisor uh, at Harvard, who doesn't share my faith, uh, perhaps is wondering why I've chosen this career as opposed to being an academic, uh, of antiquity, but he was so warm about this opportunity and, and so affirming about the role of evangelicalism in America. Even though he does not share this faith, even though he recognizes the polarization that is occurring right now. He also recognizes that there are people of real good will who are pursuing truth and are pursuing good for this nation. And, and he thinks that the NAE could be this agent for good uh, in this country. And, and so I, I'm reminded and humbled by that, uh, that here this person that has perhaps a very different worldview, uh, and has different conclusions uh, about faith than I do, nevertheless sees the importance that faith plays in the life of our country and, and is very um, quick to affirm and commend the, the work of the NAE.
1: So you've had uh, an interesting journey. You were the only person I've ever talked to who talked about Star Wars as an evangelistic event. Um, that's <laughs> kind of uh, it was kind of new to me, and you, know, you, you go through Cambridge, Massachusetts, you end up becoming a pastor. I'm just guessing that your physician father did not plan for you to become a pastor, but wanted you to be a physician. So how did you get to the pastoral side of all this? Yeah.
2: Well, you're right, Leith. As the firstborn son of an immigrant doctor, the only doctrine of predestination in my household involved my becoming a physician. That, that was just the given of my life. It was during my college years when I had the privilege of seeing <clears throat> people in my hallway become Christians uh, and sharing the gospel with them. I had the joy of being a part of, uh, at that point, Campus Crusade now called Crew, uh, in this life of um, fellowship and witness, that I began to have this growing sense that the Lord was calling me out of. Uh, Medicine and into some sort of occupational ministry. Now, that, of course, uh, was a big problem for my family. And they were quite opposed to uh, that decision. As I was sorting this out, um, you know, I sought for advice, and it was very interesting how the advice often fell into two broad camps. And if I'd ask, my Caucasian American friends, what do you think I should do? Invariably, the advice would be some form of, well, what do you feel gifted? You know, what do you sense would be the best use of your talents? When I asked my Asian American friends what I should do, their first question was always, what do your parents think? And, you know, both have very important things to contribute and both have uh, cultural limitations. And so the decision on my part entailed a prayer entailed a prayer, Lord, if this call is upon my life and it is of you, I pray that it would not only be a use of my talents, but it would be a way to see redemption in my family. So not only did I begin to pray that, um, God would give me grace and wisdom, but that God would also save my parents bring salvation to my family. And I even went so far and this was the idealism and the faith of a young Christian, which I I hope I still have a strong strand of that in me. I trust that I do. I I began to pray, not only Lord, would you bring my parents to faith, but I pray that they would be missionaries one day with me. Uh, I had forgotten that prayer for several years. Uh, until after I had gone into ministry my parents had become Christians during those those years of discernment Uh, my brother and sister both came to faith as well during those years of discernment my parents then gave me their blessing to leave medicine and go into ministry in fact my dad drove all the way across country from uh, Pennsylvania to drop me off at uh vancouver regent college uh, and spent the last night praying for me that he that the lord would bless my time of study i uh i forgotten that original prayer that i asked that the lord would not only bring my parents to faith but make them missionaries until one summer where i was uh, in the republic of georgia country of Georgia in former Soviet Union on a short-term mission project and that very same summer my parents were in St. Petersburg uh, distributing Bibles and I I was struck by the Lord's mercy in all of this that the Lord honored both sides of my cultural upbringing. Uh, This sense of calling and fidelity to family, but also of gifting and saw that my parents not only came to faith, but they shared a vibrancy of faith that would compel them to go to a different country and share the gospel. I mean, it was a really compelling reminder uh, of God's graciousness uh, to me in the call that I followed his call of going into the ministry.
1: I have some questions I need to ask you about NAE, but one more family question. Um, you, you've mm. talked about your family of origin. What about your nuclear family that, you know, your immediate family now? Who are they? And tell us about them.
2: Yeah. So my wife, uh, Tony and I have been married for 25 years. She has a cultural upbringing that bears some similarities. She's Taiwanese-American. Her parents also immigrated to America a few years before she was born. She was born in Houston, born and raised there. Um, And we met in Connecticut, uh, married again for 25 years and two kids, uh, Nathan and Naomi, both teenagers, uh, both delightful in their own ways and uh, really have uh, been this sense of sharing life together in ministry. Uh, And I I say this um, because it is, in fact, literally true. Uh, so for 15 years at Park Street, I served as a pastor. Uh, but my wife was also uh, on the pastoral staff at Park Street. In fact, I got my job at Park Street uh, because of my wife, Tony. She was hired at Park Street before I was and uh, was serving as a minister for small groups. Uh, when we were expecting our son, Nathan, she decided she wanted to go part-time. And the church came back uh saying well you know maybe the two of you could job share a position at that point i was writing my dissertation uh, at harvard and so i had more flexibility uh, with what my days looked like uh, and park street was very loath to lose tony uh, and so they created this job for us to share so when i say we're in ministry together I literally mean it. We had one desk, one computer that we shared between the two of us, and we would swap back and forth as we worked on uh, small group ministry. Uh, When my daughter Naomi was born, um, she uh, was diagnosed with Down syndrome. We did not know that uh, prenatally. Uh, We discovered this after she was born. As we were contemplating what to name her, we decided to give her the middle name of joy uh, because we wanted her to not only experience the joy of the Lord, but to be the source of joy for others. I think having both Nathan and Naomi in our lives and being a part of the life of Park Street, that began to change what we thought of ministry. And so One of the things that uh, Tony did uh, in particular, and I worked alongside her, was to start a ministry at Park Street for those touched by disability uh, called Enable Boston. Because we are firmly convinced that the church itself uh, was going to be handicapped if it did not find ways of incorporating those touched by disability. And, And so, Naomi became very much an impetus for our entire church uh, at Park Street to embrace what it looks like to have a gospel that brings people of all sorts of abilities, not only to serve them, but to serve alongside them. Uh, and so life for us as a family has very much been um, revolving about ser- around service and expressing the life of the gospel in its uh, various forms.
1: How about bring all that together to the question of, then why NAE? What what draws you to this opportunity to be the leader, the, the president of the National Association of Evangelicals? I'm convinced that evangelicals need to move away
2: from this controlling metaphor of culture wars. I think we have an opportunity to have a different kind of metaphor, a metaphor of bridge building not as a compromise to our deep convictions uh, of the truthfulness of the gospel the beauty of Jesus uh, of orthodoxy but as a recognition that in this cultural context as America increasingly uh, becomes post-Christian at least portions of America that we have this missional opportunity Uh, to present the gospel with a freshness, a vitality, a a mandate that we need to do this. Uh, And that what's going on in our culture is is not something that we need to wage war against as much as we need to reach love, um, win over to the gospel. But it's a complicated moment. It requires critical thinking. It requires engaging charitably. It requires an ironic spirit. It requires collaboration Uh, in the common cause of Christ. And the NAE represents this. When I joined the board in 2013, I was struck by the breadth of denominations and organizations that were represented. Each uh, recognizing that they have distinctives uh, in terms of their theological emphases, in terms of their particular organizational focus, but what bound us together in the a was so much greater that, than what differentiated us. And that the gospel was this message, this person that drew people together. We do not have this in our culture. And rather than lamenting this, I see this as an opportunity. I see this as an opportunity to pr- present Christ anew to the culture and that the NAE, the spirit of the NAE is precisely the kind of compelling witness uh, that I think brings a vitality to to the goodness of the good news uh, that America truly needs in this moment. To be a part of that um, is exciting. It's exhilarating. I look forward to that. It's also daunting. It drives me to my knees. It gives me this sense that, Lord, if you are not in this, it is doomed to fail. Uh, yet I believe the Lord is in this, and so I'm I'm excited about what what is ahead. And you know, this bridge building for my own story is particularly important. As an Asian American, I feel very strongly that the the changing composition ethnically of America. Uh, Yes, it provides challenges in an unprecedented way where we are going to have to figure out what does it mean to live in such a diverse country, but it provides an opportunity to mirror in our own country what it means that we are one day going to be worshiping around the throne of God when people from every nation, tribe, tongue, language are going to be there. We get to see a microcosm of that here in America in the decades to come and the NAE I think represents an opportunity to see this robust diverse winsome even good news um, draw people together so whether it's a message that draws people together across ethnic or economic lines or regions of the country uh, it is precisely this kind of gospel that I believe the NAE is deeply committed to. And I'm thrilled again for this opportunity.
1: There's lots of news out there today. So whether it's on your um, smartphone or you pick up a newspaper or read a magazine or turn on your computer or television, I mean, just all these sources of news. And, you know, candidly, a lot of it's not very good news. Um, to be an evangelical, the very word means good news. So in, uh, in a world with so much news, the, the good news. So w- where, where do you see the hope? What, you know, what's the simple understanding of what brings you hope as a believer in Jesus Christ, as an evangelical?
2: That the gospel has always changed lives that understanding that Christ is still the head of the church and he is still at work. One of the great joys of being a pastor is to see that uh, on the individual level, but on the corporate level. I think of conversations, even this past week that I've had, with an international student uh, here, studying at the University of Virginia, who came to an event that we hosted. And it was an opportunity uh, to give hospitality. We welcomed hundreds of students into our midst. And in that conversation uh, over the dinner table, having the opportunity to introduce Christ, because the question was, why, why, would a, why would a group of people do this? What, what compels a group of people uh, to invite strangers? And having the opportunity to present to this Chinese student a message of welcome, that Jesus came into this world to welcome those who are often not welcomed, to seek out those who were often lost and didn't even know it. Uh, and that there would be a great banqueting table that draws people from all nations. And that what we were doing is just a foretaste of what we as Christians believe is going to be the everlasting joy that awaits us. Uh, it excites me that the gospel really does change lives. And you see this in every corner of the work of evangelicals in our country. We definitely get bad press in terms of what we stand against. And sometimes that's rightfully levied against evangelicals. Other times it's unfairly uh, levied against evangelicals. But what doesn't get shared enough is in every corner of our country, what I experience is happening. Stories of hospitality and welcome. Stories of evangelicals going into the broken places of cities with a message of hope. Stories of marriages being put together, uh, of families being restored, of people pursuing justice on behalf of those who can't defend themselves. This is the work of the gospel that has always taken place. And it's the work that's still taking place. And it's the work that needs to take place even more. And that excites me about evangelicalism. Uh, I, I see that it is still the message of good news and it's happening. And I, I am thrilled about the chance that the NA has to present this kind of good news to to the world.
1: This has been today's conversation with Leith Anderson and Walter Kim. It's been my privilege to host so many interesting and engaging conversations over the years, this one included. So thanks to all who have listened in, and stay tuned for next month's episode hosted by Walter Kim.
0: The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.